Our Father, this morning, um, as we think about Thanksgiving and as we think about the coming of this week, we are reminded of what you have said to us in First Thessalonians, to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in everything, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And there is some sense in which it's easy to give thanks. We We live in a country that is bountiful and plentiful in material goods and possessions. Most of us do not worry about um, maintaining a roof over our heads. Most of us do not worry about whether or not there will be a meal this afternoon or this evening or tomorrow morning. Uh, Most of us live in relative safety. We do not fear for those who will come and intrude on our homes to cause us physical harm. And yet, Father, in each of our lives, there are burdens and there are weights and there are pressures that do, at times, make it hard to be grateful. And so, Father, would you work in our hearts through this passage and through a reminder of the provision of Christ, a sense of gratitude an attitude of thanksgiving, a desire to please you with hearts that are grateful to you no matter what our circumstances are. So three things particularly come to mind this morning. Would you give us gratitude for and make us thankful for our freedom from sin and death? For of all of our problems, if we are in Christ, our greatest problem has been removed. Oh, we still carry the, the battle with the flesh, but we do not carry your wrath. We have been freed. We have been moved from, from Satan to Christ. We have been moved from darkness to light. We have been moved from, from sin to life. And oh, Father, our hearts are deeply thankful for this work. We thank you, Father, for, secondly, the work of your grace to transform us. And as we look in the body of Christ, we see evidences of your transforming work in others as well. This this is magnanimous grace, not only that you have saved us, but that you are in the process of sanctifying us and conforming us to Christ. And, and for this we give you thanks. And thirdly, we give you thanks that our hardships are being used by you to produce gratitude in our lives and in the lives of others. Father, would you, would you sanctify us in the midst of these hardships? And would you make us grateful as we are being sanctified? These, these ideas uh, we know are true from your word but they they come to us with difficulty. It's hard to practice these things. And so would you, by this powerful passage, uh, guide us this morning into gratitude in the midst of our difficulties, we pray in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen. Well, as we've just prayed this coming week, we will be celebrating Thanksgiving. And as we have similarly prayed, those who are suffering often find it difficult to express gratitude in the midst of that suffering. There may be dressy, dressing and turkey and pecan pie on the table, but 
For far too many, there is resentment and anger and ingratitude in the hearts of those who suffer. In contrast, consider the story of Fanny Crosby, who when she was six weeks old and suffering a, a, an ordinary childhood illness, her doctor, medical doctor, put a mustard plaster on her face and burned her eyes irrevocably, rendering her blind for the rest of her life. This woman who became the one of the great hymn writers of our faith wrote in her autobiography, It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank Him for the dispensation. If I could meet my doctor now, I would say, Thank you, thank you, over and over again for making me blind. How could she say that? Because she said, I could not have written thousands of hymns if I had been hindered by the distractions of seeing all the interesting and beautiful objects that would have been presented to my notice. In fact, this is, this is not just something that she came to later in life, but, but even as a child, she had this perspective. The first known poem of hers that she wrote when she was eight years old reflects that conviction. Listen to what she said, eight years old. Oh, happy, oh, excuse me, oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, Contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. So weep or sigh because I'm blind. I cannot, nor I won't. Isn't that amazing? You you and I are likely similar to most American Christians. We do not suffer well. As John Piper has noted, we expect things to work. We expect help to be offered when we need it. We expect relief when we want it. We expect respect and courtesy. We never expect to be told that there is nothing that can be done. We want answers. We want solutions. We want what we want. And we don't expect or want or like problems. And we especially don't expect or want or like suffering and persecution. But we live in a world where problems and troubles and suffering and persecution are normal, even for believers. In fact, we might even say that problems and troubles and suffering and persecution are the norm for believers in Jesus Christ. And it seems, frankly, that we have more of these troubles and difficulties than the rest of the world. And as we think about that, that doesn't make us happy either. It's not fair. So how will we respond when we suffer? How should we think about our suffering? It is those kinds of questions that the Apostle Paul addresses in the middle of chapter 8. In his introductory statements to, to this section about suffering and difficulty and trials and the weights of the world, he says in verses 17 and 18, Always evaluate your present suffering in light of your coming glorification. As he prepares us to think about suffering and difficulty and trial, 
He says, always evaluate your present suffering in light of your coming glorification. Always evaluate today's sufferings in light of tomorrow's joys. Don't, don't just look at today's sufferings, but look ahead to the joys of tomorrow when we get to glory. Paul will not minimize suffering. He will not attempt to remove suffering. But he will tell us what we need to think about in new ways so that we might endure our suffering. And he will help us to think in two particular ways about our suffering and about our difficulty. And as we come to this passage, always evaluating our present suffering in light of our coming glorification, let me just set for you the context and remind you the context in which Paul is going to say what he says in verse 18. And that is that God's children are inheritors. God's children are inheritors. Verse 17, and um, just reminding us about the context, start in verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies within our spirit that we are children of God. So when we are mortifying the flesh and, and putting to death the deeds of the flesh according to the power of the Spirit of God, then, then we understand through the Spirit as He um, testifies to us, that mortification process gives Evidence that we are God's sons. And if we are children, verse 17, then heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. This chapter is focusing on the work of the Spirit of God to assure believers of our salvation. One of the most basic acts of the Spirit of God being, as we've already alluded to, verse 13, that we will be mortifying the flesh. So if we are walking in submission to the Spirit, the Spirit will be producing in us what the Spirit does, and that is pushing back against the flesh, pushing back against sin, mortifying and killing sin. That is what it means, verse 14, to be led by the Spirit of God. And and if you are being led in that way, he says, then you are sons of God. You've been moved from darkness to light, from death to life, from Satan to Christ. And and amazingly, not just not just moved into Christ, but adopted as God's sons. Verse 14, these are sons of God. Verse 15, you have received a, a spirit of adoption. Verse 16, the Spirit testifies that we are children of God. That is our condition. That is our place. And then notice verse 17, and if we are children, then we are heirs. And in fact, notice that that he alludes to the fact that we have an inheritance three times. We are heirs also, along with our sonship. We are heirs of God. And then thirdly, we are fellow heirs with Christ. He says, first of all, we are heirs also. To, to be an heir means we receive an inheritance. But notice that, that this inheritance is given as soon as we become sons. We don't have to wait for the father to die in order to receive this inheritance. So normally an inheritance is only received when the father is gone, when the father has died. But but as soon as we become God's children, immediately at that moment, we receive that inheritance. 
And the inheritance we receive is not just land. And in the Old Testament, to, to talk about inheritance is to talk about the reception of land and, and to, re, to talk about the reception of property. But, but we have something far different. We have a, a spiritual inheritance, a, the kind of inheritance that Peter talks about in his first letter, chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Why? Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. So that we have an inheritance now, Peter would say, and, and not just now, but it is lasting. He, knows, he says to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and it is undefiled and it will not fade away. It is reserved or kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You have this inheritance. It is a guarantee. And you even now are experiencing some of the blessings of the inheritance that you will receive in full when you get to heaven. You have an inheritance. You are, you are children of God and you are already heirs. But not just, not just heirs. Notice what he, he says about this inheritance. We are heirs of God. That it is, that is, it is God who is the one who gives the inheritance. The, the emphasis is not just that the believer gets an inheritance, that's true. But the emphasis is that it is God who grants the inheritance. It is God who gives the inheritance. God who was their enemy. God who was opposed to them. God who was ready to pour out His wrath on them. Now that God grants his inheritance to them. It's, it's almost as if Paul is saying to them, have you considered who it is that has written out the will of inheritance that you have received? It's God. It's the creator of the universe, the perfect one, the one to whom you are indebted for all things, the one who had the right to pour out his wrath on you, the one who was your mortal I use that word intentionally, enemy. He brought you to life and made you his heir. Have you considered this? It's God. But even more than that, when he says we are heirs of God, it also means, and probably even more directly and more specifically and more accurately, it means that God himself is the inheritance. It's not just that, that God gives the inheritance, but, but that when we come to Him and when we become His sons, we get Him. He becomes our Father. He becomes our Savior. He becomes our Lord. He becomes our Master. We come to have fellowship with Him. It is akin to what the psalmist says, Psalm 23, verse 5, who, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and He is my portion forever. What does the believer in God get? What does the follower of God get? We, we get gifts from God, but even more than that, we get God. 
In fact, this is, this is a most remarkable promise that is given to the Levites. If, if you remember back to, to uh, the nation of Israel and, and all of the things that, that the nation of Israel would receive, there, there were 12 sons of um, Jacob. And I always have to go through the list and make sure I get the correct patriarch there. So Jacob has 12 sons, and they all receive an inheritance and a blessing, right? But Joseph, Joseph actually doesn't receive the blessing, but his two sons receive the blessing. They get a a double portion, but there's still only 12 blessings that are given out. One of the sons gets left out. Remember who it is? Levi. Levi gets left out. Levi doesn't get a land portion, so they go in to the land of Israel. Twelve portions are meted out. Joseph gets a double portion through his two sons. And Levi gets nothing. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. And and when that word first came down, you can just imagine, can't you? The hearts of all the Levitical priests going, oh, we've lost. We get nothing. And then he says, they shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and his portion. Okay, at least we get to eat tomorrow. Then verse 2, they shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance as He promised them. I I read that and every time I read that I think, they got the best deal. They got the best. Everybody else just got a piece of land. They've got to work it. They've got to till it. They've got to bring the produce. The Levites get the Lord. And brothers and sisters, when it says in Romans chapter 8 that we are heirs of God, it's telling us the same thing. We, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, get God. Heirs of God. We're not just heirs of God, though. It gets, if, it, if, it's, if it's possible, it gets even better. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Now, Jesus Christ is already receiving from His inheritance, but this is a promise that we will join in Christ's inheritance. Now, you might read this sentence to say something like this. We are, we are heirs alongside of Christ. So Christ is the firstborn of all creation. So, so Christ gets a particular inheritance from the Father, as the firstborn of all creation, he gets preeminence. And then of the leftover inheritance that comes from God, we just divide it up among all the millions and billions of believers in Jesus Christ. And, and we share a, a little tiny portion of what Christ gets. And that is not what Paul means. What Paul means is that every child of God receives a full and equal inheritance of being aligned to and receiving gifts from and through the firstborn, Jesus Christ. 
MacArthur helpfully says, every adopted of child will receive the full inheritance with the Son. Because there is infinite grace and infinite riches, God has an ability to give an infinite inheritance to every believer. So every believer receives an inheritance alongside Jesus Christ and every believer's inheritance is completely full, completely adequate. This is, this is the very thing that, that Jesus is talking about in the parable of, of the, um, of the, the man who goes to um, hire laborers for the day in Matthew chapter 20. And so he hires some at the beginning of the day, and they work all day, and he hires some at, at the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and he hires some at the eleventh hour, and all of them receive a full wage for the day. And this is what it is like to be in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter when you come in. It doesn't matter where you come in. It doesn't matter what you were before Jesus Christ. We all receive the full inheritance of being connected to Jesus Christ. We all, as God's children, are inheritors. But there's a second principle in verse 17 also, isn't there? God's children are sufferers. We're also Sufferers. Notice he says in the middle of the verse, if indeed we suffer with him. And when he says, if indeed, it's actually much stronger than that. It has the sense of seeing that we suffer with him or since we suffer with him. And Paul is pointing to the certainty of suffering. It is a reality. Now, it could be that the Apostle Paul is pointing to something like Romans chapter 6 and pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ, when He died on the cross, He suffered on our behalf. And so when we come to believe in Him, we are identified with His suffering on the cross. And, 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 and because of that, we suffer along with Him. But He means an actual suffering. An actual suffering that is experienced because the person is a follower of Jesus Christ. The world hates Jesus Christ and because the world hates Jesus Christ, the world hates all of Christ's sufferers and we suffer because of our identification with Him. That's what Paul talks about in verse 35 of this chapter. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? These are the things that come to us because we have been identified with Jesus Christ. These are the things that happen to us because we are connected to Him. We experience tribulation and distress and persecution and nakedness and peril and sword. People want to kill us. We suffer because of our identification with Jesus Christ. I was reading this week in Second Timothy, and I've always understood Peter's writings to be particularly oriented towards suffering. But, but Paul, as he writes his last letter to, to Timothy, it's also just, just immersed with the suffering that comes to believers. So first, Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. 
For this reason, verse 12, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. Verse verse uh, 3 of chapter 2, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. If you're going to be a soldier of Jesus Christ, you will suffer hardship. Chapter 3, verse 1, realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. What kind of difficulties? Verse 10, you followed my teaching, Paul says to Timothy, uh, you followed my conduct, my purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra with persecutions I endured and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Chapter 4, verse 6, I am already being poured out as a drink offering the time of my departure has come. I'm, 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 I'm giving up my life for Christ. At my first defense, verse 16, no one supported me, but all deserted me, may it not be counted against them. There's suffering in this world. And then you go to the gospel of John, John chapter 16, as if, as if um, what, what Paul hasn't said is enough. We hear these words from the lips of Jesus. These things he tells the disciples right before he goes to the cross. These things he says, I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. I like what Bonhoeffer says about that verse. He says, Jesus promised to his disciples three things, that they would be completely fear, fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. He's right. This is, this is life. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you will have suffering. There is no easy pathway in this life for believers in Jesus Christ. It is a life of suffering if we will follow Jesus Christ. And we need to stop wondering what's gone wrong when we suffer. And we need to start rejoicing that we are doing something right because we are suffering. Is, is, that, a, is that a biblical perspective? Is it biblical to say, praise God, I'm doing something right because I'm suffering? It is a biblical perspective. Peter, when he suffered, Acts chapter 5, and this is, this is the Peter who a few weeks before had denied Jesus three times. And now he sees the resurrected and exalted and ascended Christ. And he is absolutely transformed. And he is persecuted and he is flogged. And it says in Acts chapter 5 verse 41, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. There is suffering, and it is our joy. It is our joy because notice the end of verse 17. Since indeed, when or because we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. There's a benefit that comes to suffering, and that is we get glory. This does not mean if you suffer, you earn the right to go to heaven as if suffering has something meritorious to do with our gaining of heaven. 
But Paul means that if you suffer because you are identified with Jesus Christ, then it gives evidence to your sonship. And because you are a son, then you get glory. You get God. You get inheritance. Or we might say it the opposite way. If you are not suffering with Christ then it indicates that you are not part of Him and you have not been justified and you will not receive eternal life. Suffering is part of the Christian life. You you cannot remove suffering from faith in Christ. Christ suffered. Jesus Himself reminds us, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter His glory? And if we are with Him, we also will suffer. And then we will experience the joy and the culmination of our faith, glorification with Him. One theologian says very well, we do not want suffering. We want success. We identify not with those who are low and hurt, but with those who are high and healthy. We don't like lepers or losers very well. We prefer climbers and comers. For Christians, the temptation to be conformed in this world is desperately sweet and strong. Yet says the Apostle Paul, we are children of God if we suffer with Christ. So taking verse 17 and kind of summarizing it, if If we mortify sin by the power of the Spirit of God, then we are children of God. And it demonstrates that we have been justified by Jesus Christ. And if we are children, He treats us like His Son. He gives us an inheritance. And we also are graced. I use that word intentionally. We are graced with the privilege of suffering with Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. That just sounds wrong to our ears though, doesn't it? Sons shouldn't suffer. Enemies should suffer. Rebels should suffer. Slaves should suffer. But sons shouldn't suffer. But the promise is made that sons do and will suffer. The Puritan Thomas Vincent put it this way, when it is your duty to suffer for Christ... Look upon it also as your privilege and be glad of the opportunity, rejoicing that you have anything to part with for the sake of Christ. And that leads us to Paul's next thought and his instruction for us. How how should we think about suffering? And the first thing he says in verse 18 is that we should consider our sufferings. We, we need to think on and think about our sufferings. And what we must think about particularly is our sufferings. You, you must think about your sufferings. Notice verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not to be worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I consider... Paul here is is not offering a personal opinion. Here's my idea about suffering. But he's using a word consider that means to account or to reckon or to think logically about something. It's it's a reasoning process. So, So Paul says, I have thought about my suffering and I have come to a particular conclusion about it as I have placed it in biblical counsel. Of what has he firmly convinced? Of what has he become convinced and compelled by? He is convinced that there is no way to compare the glory that is to come with the suffering he has on earth. 
Whatever suffering he has on earth, it cannot reach the smallest distance towards the heights of glory. No matter the weight of his burden, it will not register on the scale when compared to the glory to come. And Paul does something really interesting in this verse. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to heaven. In other words, as you think about your sufferings, do not dare to think of them in the same kind of category as heaven. In other words, there is a right way to think about suffering and there is a wrong way to think about suffering. Do not think wrongly about your suffering. Yes, you're suffering. But as you think about that suffering, don't don't succumb to the temptation to think more about your suffering. Don't overestimate your suffering. And aren't we, aren't we all prone to do that? And, and aren't we all prone to say, oh, oh yes, I know you're suffering, but, but my suffering is so much more difficult. We hear somebody who's heading into surgery and you say, oh, I'm really sorry that you're having that surgery, but let me tell you about the surgery I had. It, it's a it's a it's a sad thing when 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 pregnant women get together and they start comparing stories. Oh, you had a ten-hour labor. Let me tell you about my sixteen-hour labor. Oh, your sixteen-hour labor—that was just the beginning of my labor. Let me tell you about how bad my labor was. Your children are rebellious. Let me tell you about my rebellious children. You have a bad boss? Let me tell you about my bad boss. Have, ever, have I ever told you how mean my neighbor is? It, is? it is built into the flesh to make much of our suffering. And Paul says, don't you dare think about your suffering in the same category as heaven. Paul, Paul is echoing what he will say to the Corinthians in his second letter to them. He says in verse 16 of chapter 4, We do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, is it falling apart? Yep. I could go around the room and I'm betting every one of you doesn't feel absolutely perfect today. All of you would say, yeah, I've got this going on and I've got this going on and man, I just wish this would go away. The body's decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Is the degradation of the body real? Yes. Is the pain real? Yes. Is it light? Yes. Is it momentary? Yes. And we're putting, we're putting the categories of our suffering into the same category of heaven's weight and heaven's length. And he says, counterbalance it. Counterbalance your consideration of your suffering with the reality of what is in heaven and the length of heaven and the glory of heaven. Think about your suffering 
but only in comparison to what you will get at the end. Think about your suffering, but only in comparison to what you will get in the end. A second consideration is a reminder that your sufferings are various. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time. I consider the suffering. And, and it would be tempting to say, Paul's only thinking about the suffering that's connected to Jesus Christ because he, he particularly talked about that in verse 17, right? If indeed we suffer with Him, so we are connected with Him, and because we're connected with Him, we have a particular kind of suffering that goes along with Him. But, but the word that he uses here in verse 18 is much broader than that. It, it, it's a broad word that, that he uses to speak about all kinds of misfortunes. And in fact, in verses 19 and following, he's going to talk about the misfortunes that we, that we experience in this world. The anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of, of the sons of God. So creation itself realizes its fallenness. Creation itself realizes this isn't working right. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption. So, so this world just doesn't operate the way it did before the fall. There's things that go wrong in this world. There's, there are things like illness and loss and hunger and unemployment and financial burdens and broken relationships and consequences of sin and death and grief and it just goes on and on, doesn't it? That's what it's like in this world. And we jokingly say there are only two certainties in life and those are death and taxes, but it's true, isn't it? Death is a certainty and everything that comes with it. Death, loss, brokenness, weakness, hurt, sorrow. I remember we brought our babies home from the hospital. This particularly hit me with our firstborn. I think we were at home just a day or two. I was standing in her bedroom and had her on her little changing table and I'm changing her, putting her clothes on for the morning, just looking at her perfect little body. And you remember what it's like, that infant and just skin that is flawless? And I remember thinking, that little knee is one day going to be bloodied. Something's going to happen. She's going to, she's going to burn her fingers on the stove, almost certainly. Something's going to happen that's going to wound her heart. Somebody's going to say something to her and that, 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 that's going to devastate her. And you look at that, at her in that moment and you think, it can't, it can't happen. Look at the, the sweetness of that perfect little body. I use that term loosely, not theologically. Um, but it happens, doesn't it? And 25 years later, it's not just a theory that she's going to be hurt. It's a reality. She's been hurt many times. There's much suffering in this world. We, we, we experience suffering from the fallenness of the world itself. There's cancer and car accidents and blizzards and hurricanes. We, we live in a world that is imperfect and fallen. There is suffering from sin. I sin against others. Others sin against me. Relationships are broken. And relationships sometimes are not repaired. And we suffer because of being a follower of Jesus Christ. The point is, not everyone experiences the same sufferings, but everyone suffers. 
Everyone knows heartache. Everyone knows pain. Since Genesis 3, no one is immune from this trouble. And we, we spend our lives trying to escape suffering when God says it is woven into the very fabric of life. And instead of attempting to avoid it, we need to start learning to think rightly about it. The last thing you would have us to think in verse 18 is that our sufferings are now the sufferings of this present time. He doesn't mean they're here for the time being. He doesn't doesn't mean that he has them and others do not. He means that there is a kind of suffering that belongs to this age as opposed to the age to come, the age in glory. As long as you live on this earth, there is a particular kind of suffering that we will experience. It is the nature of this world to experience trouble. As someone has said, there are three kinds of people. There were those who were suffering yesterday. There are those who are suffering today. And there are those who are going to receive a phone call tonight. All of us are suffering. All of us have pain. How do you know if someone has suffered or will suffer? Are they alive? And if they are alive, they will suffer. My friends, some of us have some of us have created mental refuges where suffering doesn't exist, and and we've said, "I have a right to a pain-free, suffering-free existence." And that is not what God has said. You have. You must think rightly about suffering. It is a reality. You must also then consider your glorification. And in considering your glorification, you must specifically think about glory. You must think about glory. And think about glory because it is incomparable. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory What's the glory? Glory simply means to be revealed. There is a revelation. We know of God. When we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the revelation of the fullness of God. When we talk about glorifying God, we're talking about living in such a way that the fullness of of who God is is being revealed and manifested. When Paul here talks about the glory that is to be revealed to us, he's talking about all that we will be and all that we have when we are in glory and every vestige of sin is removed and we have the fullness of our salvation. And it is that to which he says we need to think. We must learn to give heaven and our future the right weight that they deserve. My friends, we are far too earthly minded. We think far too much about what we will suffer here and what we will receive here and far too little about what we will receive in heaven as the fulfillment of our complete joy. Now you can, you can talk about heaven in a lot of different ways. You can talk about the beauty of heaven. You can talk about restored relationships in heaven. You can talk about sinlessness and complete freedom from the flesh in heaven. You can talk about the absence of human frailty and illness that we will have in heaven. You could talk about the immensity of seeing Jesus Christ. 
But what Paul would have us to focus on here is the duration and the weight of heaven. He says, you have something here on earth. Do not compare this little suffering that you have here with the weight of heaven. Don't compare it. Why does he say it is incomparable? Because it is infinite in blessing and infinite in time. The joy that we will have in heaven is infinite. It is full and complete. And the joy we will have in heaven is unending. Friends, there's just no way to wrap our puny little brains around this. So, I was trying to think about this. This is, this is a feeble attempt, but it's my attempt. Someone born today, um, if they're a male, life expectancy about 76 years, according to the data that I found the other day. If they're a female, life expectancy of about 81 years. Let's split the difference and say they've got a life expectancy of 78 years. Someone that lives to be 78 years can expect about 28,500 days on this earth. Wow, long time. How does that compare to eternity? 28,500 days. If a day on earth is as a thousand years in heaven, we get 28,500,000 years on earth. And friends, if we had that long... It's just the barest beginning of eternity. Friends, it's nothing. What, what, is, what is one month of suffering compared to 28 and a half million years? Or what is one year of suffering? Or 30 years? Or 80 years? In comparison to 28 million when eternity has just begun. One writer has well said, who would complain if God allowed one hour of suffering in an entire lifetime of comfort? Yet we complain bitterly about a lifetime that includes suffering when that lifetime is a mere hour of eternity. Tim Keller also offers one more way for us to think about our suffering and how it doesn't compare to heaven He says, if heaven is a compensation for all the stuff that we wanted and we never had, that is one thing. But if the new heaven and the new earth is our hope, and it is, it will make everything horrible we've experienced nothing but a nightmare. And as a nightmare, it will infinitely correspond, it will infinitely correspondingly increase our future joy and glory in a way that wouldn't have been increased if we'd never suffered. Which is to say, how will you know joy if you don't know suffering? And only as you know suffering will you revel in and delight in and understand the fullness of joy that we have in heaven. We must think about heaven and we must think about Christ in a particular way because we are suffering. We must wait Christ, glory, heaven as far more comprehensive and more, far more substantive than the suffering we have here.
we must also understand that our glory is all transforming. Notice that Paul says, it is the glory that is to be revealed. That is, glory will be known, glory will be disclosed, glory will be brought to light. It is, it is the final work of God's redemption in us and to us. It, it's what Paul alludes to uh, in verses 28 and 29 and, and 30. Those whom he predestined, he says in verse 30, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's a fullness of of their salvation that is coming and one day the fullness of that will be revealed. When will it be revealed? It will be revealed when we are in glory with Him. This is what John says in his first letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared what we will be. I look at you guys and I say, don't see perfection yet. And you say, right back at you, preacher. We're not there yet. We haven't seen it. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Revelation 22, there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Jesus Christ, property of Jesus Christ. We belong to Him. No one can see the face of Jesus and live. Moses couldn't. Elijah couldn't. John says that when he saw the image of the exalted Christ in Revelation 1, John, the dearest disciple of Jesus Christ, the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ, no man on this earth knew Jesus Christ like the Apostle John, and he says, when I saw the exalted Christ, I fell on my face as a dead man. We will see him as he is. And John says, or excuse me, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, this glory, it is to be revealed to us. We will see it. We will get to heaven and we will look at each other and we will see the completeness of Christ. I will see you completed in Christ. But as we are in heaven, it's not just that it's revealed to us. There's also a sense in which it's revealed in us because, because we are transformed from the inside out All of us, every aspect of us is completely transformed. I like what one commentator, he says, this glory will, as it were, come to us, enter us, and then having filled us and enveloped us, will be revealed in us. And we ourselves will be part of that glory. The redeemed will see it in each other. The angels will behold it in us and will be filled with thanksgiving and praise to God. 
Oh, my friend, there is nothing of you that will be remain or that will remain untransformed. You will all be changed in an instant as you enter eternity. Every fleshly inclination, every fleshly temptation to sin, every sinful thought, every sinful deed, every frailty of your body will instantly, completely, and eternally be removed. And friends, when you're having trouble today, this is where your mind must go. Your glory is all transforming and your glory is certain. It's not now, but it is certain. Notice what he says. The glory that is to be revealed. It is a certainty. It is coming and it will not be missed. It will arrive. All the things that seem to be wrong in life, all the hardships that we endure, they will be rectified. They will end and eternity with Christ in glory will will begin and will come. And Paul also means us to understand that this This transformation is coming quickly. It's coming quickly. It's close in time. And and friends, this should keep us from despair. When it seems that 30-year illnesses are eternal, this helps us to remember that they are not eternal, but that glorification is. Your weights, they are weighty, but not in comparison to glory. Oh friend, persevere in doing good. The wait for heaven is short. And the burden you carry is light when it will be exchanged for the blessings of heaven. The severest trial will be a triviality when weighed against the gifts of heaven. Do not give in to sin. Do not give in to despair. Do not give in to hopelessness. Look past your trial to the King who is enthroned in the heavens, the one who is your Father and who has made you His Son and who has granted to you all of the inheritance of heaven that is coming with your inheritance with Christ. Look past the trial and look to Him and look to the glory that awaits you. Oh, our Father, we need this word. Because the weights are heavy, the temptations are powerful. But, oh, Father, help us to see the glory of what you have provided. Help us to, re- to, to revel in the glory of Christ, the glory of freedom, and the glory of the coming revelation. Oh, Father, let us not be preoccupied with our problems. Let us be preoccupied with our Savior and our future. It is in that Savior's name that we pray. Amen.